Amos was a shepherd and farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah who was called by God to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. His ministry was around the same time as Hosea before the destruction of Israel, and the book can be broken up into three main sections. In the first section of the book, chapters 1 and 2, Amos begins his message by drawing on imagery from Hosea and Joel of God as a roaring lion to let us know that this lion has roared and his judgment is coming. The pronouncements of judgment follow the poetic pattern of, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And this shows us that he has been patient with the nations, but his tempered mercy is about to make way for his holy wrath. And then we come to the second section of the book, chapters 3 to 6, when the so-called people of God are repeatedly told by the prophet, hear this word that is being spoken as the roaring lion now sets his eyes on them. God had disciplined them over and over again, but they wouldn't repent. He had sent his prophets to them to remind them of the covenant, but they wouldn't listen. So in the final section of the book, chapters 7 to 9, the prophet shares five visions of the coming judgment to show that it cannot be stopped. However, those who acknowledge their sin and turn to him will be preserved. And so the book ends with the roaring lion now speaking a glorious word of peace and restoration to the true people of God now made up, from, made up of people from the nations. So that's the big picture of Amos' message that serves as the backdrop for us in chapter 5. I believe this snapshot chapter is as timely for us as it was for them back then, and I hope that we listen to what they failed to hear. Because God is God, sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to life. So the first point for today is the cry. Now, with restrictions easing up, imagine someone said to you, you know what, I'm going to hold a gathering for you, and I want you to come. And you think, sure, uh, you invite your friends and your family and you're there to have a good time. You get there and it turns out that this gathering is your funeral. The casket is all laid out. There's a whole dog in the ground. There's a nice photo of you that says, in loving memory of. How would you feel? <laughs> what would you think? How weird would it be to be present at your own funeral? See, in a time when Israel was close to its peak in stability and strength, Amos takes up a lament for the nation. In verses 1 to 3, he laments over them. And then in verses 16 to 17, God says that the people themselves will mourn over what will happen because he has declared that he will pass through their midst in judgment. The tone that Amos uses to begin this section highlights the severe message that summarizes most of the book. God's judgment is surely coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's unavoidable. In fact, three times in the book, we read that Yahweh has sworn. That is a very serious thing. He has sworn to bring judgment on his people. 
He is so committed and faithful to do what he has promised that Amos laments over Israel as if it had already happened. The language in the book makes it clear that by the time God's judgment comes, the flourishing will become the fallen, and the favored will become forsaken. After God passes through their midst, they will become unrecognizable. But the question then is, why is judgment coming? That leads us to our second point, the case. See, in verses 10 to 13, we read this. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent at such a time, for it is an evil time. See, they hated truth and justice, and they silenced those who tried to speak up. They treated the poor, those weaker than them, and the the righteous, those more godly than them, with contempt. Yeah, a number of them were enjoying life, but in verse 11, it points us to the likelihood that their enjoyment was a result of afflicting others and taking advantage of them. In short, God's case against them was that they were lawless and loveless. Now, if you remember what I said about the opening chapters of the book, Amos prophesies about the coming judgment on the nations. But interestingly, nowhere in those prophecies does God mention the worship of false gods, even though they did that. No, if you read the opening chapters, you will find that the case God has against the nations is that they treated others inhumanely, they turned their backs on the covenants they had made, and they had no pity on others afflicting those weaker than them. In short, their actions had been lawless and loveless. Does that sound familiar? In fact, compared to the short verses addressed to each of these nations, God God's case against his people spans chapters. It's as if he is saying through Amos, you're not only as bad as the nations I promised to judge, but you're actually worse. And then he says in chapter 3, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for, your, for all your iniquities. You only have I known. What God is reminding them of here is that he had called them apart for relational intimacy. This is why Hosea can be asked to reflect the broken intimacy between God and his people by his own relationship with his unfaithful wife. God knows his people all too well. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. If judgment was coming on the nations for their lawlessness and lovelessness, then Israel, who is just as guilty, wasn't going to get off easy. 
So will you? Could your life be characterized as being lawless and loveless? Now, before you defend yourself and point out how you're not as bad as the worst person you can think of, please listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Each of these nations, including Israel, had failed this. So how are you doing? Is your comfort and ease what controls every decision that you make? Do you treat other people as unavoidable casualties as you strive for your own goals, or is your life marked by love? Lament, Amos says, judgment is coming. What happens when God is God is that sin leads to judgment, and you are just as guilty, even worse so than those who as those who claim to be the people of God. But how did they get here? That leads us to our third point, the cause. The people of Israel were handpicked by God to become his people. They had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought into this amazing land that he had promised to them. And whenever they cried out to him, he delivered them. Moses says about Israel in Deuteronomy 4.7, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, they weren't just any people. They were God's people. Like we heard last week, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, in its simplest sense, marked a time of judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. So naturally then, Israel thought that they would be fine and welcomed God's judgment. However, twice in verses 18 to 20 of our chapter, the prophet tells them that the day of the Lord will be darkness, not light. I don't even need to think of an illustration for you because the first preacher of this message has a brilliant one. The day of Yahweh will be like escaping a lion only to run into a bear, and then escaping a bear only to be bitten by a snake just when you thought you were safe. If the lion doesn't get you, the bear will. And if the bear doesn't get you, the snake will. There will be no place to hide. On the day of judgment, the jungle book is going to read very differently. And I'm not talking about for the people out there. I'm talking about for you. But aren't they God's people? What happened to them? Look at verses 21 to 23. Look at the words God uses. He is in no way unclear as to how he feels about what is going on here. I hate, I despise, I take no delight, I will not accept, I will not look, I will not listen, take it away. The people were religious, but it was obvious that their religion held no weight. To put it in a way that we would understand today, 
It was obvious that what they did on Sundays was meaningless because it changed absolutely nothing in how they lived in the rest of the week. You know why? Because their so-called worship wasn't for God, it was for themselves. Their religion was a cover for their rebellion. How else could one claim to encounter the living God and remain the same? But this wasn't surprising to God. He references the unfaithfulness of their fathers in the wilderness. If you read the accounts of the Israelites' journey from Egypt into the Promised Land, you will see that their empty religion couldn't cover up their rebellion before God then, and so it wouldn't now. Nathan wisely pointed out last week that sometimes in worship, we lead with our bodies so that our hearts will follow, and that is true. But that's not what's happening here. The issue here is leading with your body where your heart has no intention of going. Yeah, they knew all the songs. They never missed church. They were at all the events. They volunteered for all the ministries. Their tithes and offerings kept all the deacons and church staff happy. But their hearts were so rotten that it all smelled like a garbage heap to God. They had no regard for God or his word in their worship, and that revealed itself in how they lived their lives. John Calvin, writing about the dangers of holding to religion with no regard to whether it is founded on truth, says this. He writes, It is easy to see how superstition with its false glosses mocks God while it tries to please him. Those, therefore, who set up a fictitious worship merely worship and adore their own delirious fancies. Indeed, they would never dare so trifle with God had they not previously fashioned him after their own childish conceits. God's judgment was coming because they had been lawless and loveless, and that was a visible effect caused by a deep-rooted worship issue. A broken relationship with God will always, always impact our relationships with one another, one way or another. Friends, I hope you're beginning to see that this message isn't simply for people way back when. You can't just sit back today as if this doesn't apply to you. Both the nations who claimed who didn't claim God and the Israelites who did were both accountable to God's judgment. And whether or not you claim to be a Christian today, this message is aimed right at you because this same God roars from heaven today and he is ready to judge the sins of all people. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul lays out this same progression He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says judgment is coming. So why is judgment coming? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He says there's a fundamental worship issue here. See, everyone worships something, whether you're religious or religiously against the notion of God. 
And you can be as religious as you want, but if it is not grounded in the truth of the true God who has revealed himself in his word, then you have a worship issue. And so how does this worship issue work itself out in human relationships? Paul goes on to say that since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As you listen to that list, doesn't that sound like our society today? It might sound like your life this morning. If so, it could very well be a symptom pointing to the greater reality that you have a worship issue. And its effects will become visible one way or another. See, whether it's committing genocide or embezzling people's retirement funds or betraying a loved one or cheating on your time card while working from home or taking the credit for your, uh, your group member's work, it all points to a worship issue. And the point isn't comparison The point is that we're all stained with what the Bible calls sin, falling short of God's glorious standard. When we try to play the I'm not as bad as so-and-so game, it's like the expression, I don't know if you guys know it, the pot calling the kettle black. The point is they both go under fire. See, what happens when God is God is that sin leads to judgment. And your religion, or lack of, won't hide your rebellion against him. Which brings us to our final point for today, the call. If all God had to say to the people was, judgment is coming, you're all guilty, you're all doomed, and that was the end of it, he would actually be just and right to do so. And yet, this is the same God who has revealed himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just as he is faithful to judge, he is also faithful to bring hope beyond his judgment. In verses 4 to 5 in our chapter, uh, God says, For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. The references to Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal highlight different places in Israel's history where God has shown himself to be faithful to his people. Each of these places once encouraged true worship, but had now become places of idolatry. 
This makes his address in verses 8 to 9 so weighty. He reminds them that he is the true God they should be seeking. He is the one who made the stars. He is the one who orders creation. He is the one who makes destruction come upon those who in their pride think they are safe. No one is out of... out of reach of his hands, and none would dare get between this lion and his prey. Yahweh is his name. And then we read in verses 14 to 15, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so Yahweh, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that Yahweh, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 14. Seek me and live. Seek Yahweh and live. Seek good and live. God equates himself with what is good, what the people ought to seek. The use of the words seek, love, don't seek, hate, they show you that your inward and your outward being should be aligned in the same direction towards God. This is important because what God was calling them to was to reverse the lawless and loveless character that they had. Did you catch it? In verse 7, see, their norm was to turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. But in verse 24, the reversal he calls them to is to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is calling for repentance. And what does repentance look like? It is seeking and loving him, the fountain of all that is good, and hating evil. When this is done, where injustice and unrighteousness once was, justice and righteousness will flow abundantly. Because where the people of God are, they should reflect the heart of God. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. See, you cannot claim to know and love God if you don't know and love what he loves. And loyal, loyal love, justice, and righteousness are his delight. These are the things that embody his heart and what he calls his people to, to love others, to have your inward character marked by a zeal for what is right and good, and to have your outward expression ready and willing to right the wrongs you see before you. A commentator puts it this way. He says, the Lord is looking for lives whose energies abundantly and perpetually are flowing out in righteousness and justice. The cultivation and holding of sound moral principles and the practice of these principles in personal and social behavior. But this isn't simply calling the people to a moralistic life. Living for morals tries to achieve a perfect world, which is impossible because people are far from perfect. Sin is a real thing. 
The brokenness in our hearts is a real thing. An uninformed and undirected sense of righteousness and justice only leads to perversion. Now, please don't get me wrong. Even those who don't believe in God can take up good causes. Being passionate about things like human rights, racism, and social injustice are good things. These are things that are on God's heart, as we have just seen. But without an objective foundation of truth to guide how we think and understand the world, our view becomes lopsided and inconsistent. We can tackle the symptoms all we want, and we should in many respects, but unless the cause is addressed, the issue remains. Ultimately, we cannot know what righteousness and justice are if we do not know and understand the standard for these things, God himself. And so he says, seek me. So how do we do that? Here, God calls tells the people to seek him through repentance. They were called to put aside false worship and seek him, the true God who had revealed himself to them. They were called not to use their religion as a covering for their rebellion anymore, but to reclaim the substance of that religion, and in so doing, to reflect the object of their worship by being marked by justice, righteousness, and love toward others. And as he calls them to this standard, listen to the motivation God gives them. You see it again in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 14. That you may live. The people, in their disobedience, had chosen death and curse. This was why God's judgment was coming, but now they had the chance to repent and choose life. Please listen. Because God is God, your sin leads to judgment, but your repentance will lead to life. You don't know when he will declare, for three transgressions of yours and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. As the people in Amos's day were called to seek God and live, you today are called to seek Jesus and live. Your intellect will not save you. Your other gods cannot save you. Emptying your mind by meditation will not empty your soul of the sins that you have committed. Only Jesus can save you. He is the Lord of the day of the Lord. He is truly God. And yet he entered into human history and died on a cross like a rebel and a thief. Friends, he took your place for all your rebellion against God, for all the times you stole the glory due to his name for yourself. He did this so that those who repent of their sins and turn to him, for them the justice of God is fully satisfied and his righteousness is accounted to them, becoming a fountain that flows out of a heart that now truly knows God. Friends, Jesus didn't just die. He was raised on the third day, and even now he rules from heaven, waiting to come back on the final day to bring justice to the enemies of God and to fulfill his plan of salvation for those who trust in him. Repent and believe in the gospel before the day of the Lord comes. 
And for you who claim to be followers of Christ today, what do you need to repent of? Is it religious hypocrisy? It is a sad reality that churches are full of religious people who are worshipping a God of their own imagination who says it's okay to live however you want as long as you come to church on Sundays and give tithes and offerings or whatever it may be. Listen, God doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need your stuff. He wants you, all of you. And when your heart is truly his, your affection, your attitudes, and your actions will flow in the right direction. So what do you need to repent of? Is it your inaction? Has your heart grown so numb that you're indifferent to the needs of others, whether physically or spiritually? Is your Christianity all faith and no works? That's dead the Bible writer says. You cannot move toward God and not move toward others. So what do you need to repent of? I don't see your heart. I don't know. But God does. Ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Like the psalmist, pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Brothers and sisters, I stand with you in all this. I'm guilty too. In God's mercy, I catch myself living or thinking in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel, and I have to repent daily, but I have confidence in these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, not because I'm such an awesome guy, or because I'm a champion for social justice, or because I am more loving and generous than anyone you ever meet, because I am none of those things. Although those types types of fruit are helpful, it cannot and should never be your source of confidence, because we all fall short daily. Our assurance must always rest in the same hope that brought us here in the first place, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, believe in the gospel daily. If you truly claim Christ, prayerfully examine your lives, repent of your sins, trust in what Jesus has accomplished, only those who do this can have peace and assurance that the day that they are on the right side of the day of the Lord. See, what happens when God is God is that sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to life. For those who repent, listen to this encouragement of hope from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But listen... But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And may that be the case for us. Please pray with me.